Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we're going to take a brief break from manuscripts and dip our toes into the pool of Bible translations. Specifically, we'll take a look at six of the most prominent Jewish translations of the Hebrew Bible, including the Jewish Publication Society translations, the Koran Jerusalem Bible, Art Scrolls Stone Tanakh, the Shotkin Bible of Everett Fox, and Robert Alter's recent translation. For each of these versions, we're going to get a brief sense of the translation style, and then we'll compare four texts from each. My aim here is just to give you an overview of these important Jewish translations that many of us Christians are just simply unaware of, and that really can help us in our Bible study. Here now is episode 334, Bible Part 5, Jewish Bible Translations. Last time we looked at the complicated subject of textual criticism, and there was just so much to that. This time, we're going to take a break from the complexities and the manuscripts and the different groups of manuscripts and get into the whole subject of Jewish Bible translations. We're actually going to look at six Jewish Bible translations. First up, we have the Jewish Publication Society of 1917 translation. Then we have the Koran Jerusalem Bible, which came out in 1961 the New Jerusalem Publication Society Bible of 1985, the R-Scroll Stone Tanakh of 1996, the Shachan Bible of Everett Fox, which the first volume came out in 95, and then the second one in 2014, and then lastly, Robert Alter's translation from 2018. Now, many of us Christians aren't all that familiar with Jewish translations, and so you might be asking yourself, if you're a Christian, well, Sean, why should I even care about Jewish translations at all? Well, I want to give you several reasons to consider Jewish translations. They've stewarded the text for thousands of years. Jewish people know the language extremely well. For some of them, it's actually their first language. And thirdly, they translate from a different perspective than Christian translations. There are also some other minor differences when you look at a Jewish translation from those of you who are familiar with Christian translations, for example, they tend to use the first verse of each psalm for that, those little words at the top that in Christian Bibles tend to be in a smaller print, like a psalm of David or something like that. They, they will actually call that verse one, so the verses a lot of times are, are off by one. Certain chapters, the verses are, are slightly different. It's all the same material, but uh, it might take a little effort for you to find things in a Jewish translation. But what I'm saying here is that I think is, it's worth it for you to consider so that you can really gain the benefits of these really, really uh, interesting translations. So, all right, here's our six translations. First up, we have the JPS, the Jewish Publication Society, of 1917. This is a non-denominational Jewish publisher. Basically what they did is they took the RV, the revised version. So you had the King James Version of 1611 that was updated in 1769 and then the revised version was a British update that happened in 1885. Um, and so the JPS, which is a now Jewish uh, publication society, take, took that Christian Bible and used that as a base text for the English translation and then changed it. It took seven years 
and it was the first Jewish translation by committee. Here is a quote from the preface of the 1917 edition. The repeated efforts by Jews in the field of biblical translation show their sentiment toward translations prepared by other denominations. Read into that, Christians. The dominant feature of this sentiment, apart from the thought that the Christological interpretations and non-Jewish translations are out of place in the Jewish Bible, is and was that the Jew cannot afford to have his Bible translation prepared for him by others. He cannot have it as a gift, even as he cannot borrow his soul from others. So this is the reasoning they're thinking, we need our own translation, we can't just take the Old Testament part of a Christian translation, which was fairly common in the English language before this. I mean, there were a few predecessors before this one, but uh, that, was, that was pretty common. They wanted to have their own. However, it started, instead of translating from scratch, what they did is they took an existing Christian version and they altered it in several important ways. So let's take a look at the textual basis for the JPS 1917. Uh, what they say is that due weight was given to the ancient versions as establishing a tradition of interpretation, notably the Septuagint and the versions of Aquilus Semichus Theodosian, the Targums, the Peshitta, the Vulgate, and the Arabic version of Sayadya. So what we have here is a really great insight. And looking at all the different Jewish translations that I have access to, this is actually the best <laughs> explanation, even though it's way back from 1917, of just telling us what you're doing. What I want to do with this translation and the others as well, the other five, is look at several texts. And I want to look at the same text in each one. I want to look at a, a, a section from Genesis, a section from Psalm 23, probably the most known psalm in the whole Bible, so I'm, I'm hoping that you have that somewhat memorized or at least familiar with it. Uh, then I'm going to look at a verse in Isaiah and a verse in Micah. So we're going to look at all together four different texts and just give you a flavor of how this translation deals with these. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now the earth was unformed and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is an utterly plain translation. <laughs> if it sounded familiar, well, it's because it's very similar to a lot of Christian translations that we're already familiar with, going back to the King James. The one notable difference, though, is that the word spirit here is lowercase, and you, you find a lot of Christian translations capitalizing the S on spirit because they believe the spirit is a person in line with the doctrine of the Trinity, whereas a Jewish person would not at all bring that doctrinal bias into this text and just translate it as spirit. Going on then to Psalm 23, very common psalm, we read a psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd. Notice that you have Lord in all capital letters here. That's because it's the name of God, Y-H-W-H, commonly pronounced Yahweh. And in this case, they're substituting in the word Lord, which is uh, the English equivalent of the Hebrew Adonai into this text. And they're doing that because they don't want to say the name of God because they want to recognize it as holy and separated and set apart and they don't want to carry that name in vain or, or say it in vain. They have for many centuries avoided saying it at all. So once again, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. We can see here that this is using Old English. Let me tell you something, in 1917, believe it or not, they did not use the term maketh. 
they said made. Uh, but yet this Bible translation went sort of like out of its way to use archaic language. Then we get to Isaiah 9.6 in which we read, For a child is born unto us, a son is given unto us, and the government is upon his shoulder, and his name is called Pelel Joez El Gibor Abi Adsar Shalom. This is utterly fascinating, and I'm actually inclined to think that this is one of the, the better translations for Isaiah 9-6. Now, this, this is the part that we hear in Handel's Messiah during Christmas time. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And so what this English version did was they took the Hebrew and they wrote the Hebrew words in English letters. Although that might strike you as really strange, the very same thing happened in Isaiah chapter 8, where the kid there was named Meher Shalal Hashbez. Isaiah 7, the sign child was called Emmanuel. And so you have Emmanuel, and then you have Meher Shalal Hashbez, and now you've got Pelel Joez El Gabor Abi Aj Sar Shalom. Can you imagine calling that kid for dinner? But it is, it is a way of translating it, just translating it literally. We'll, we'll see what other translations do going forward. Then we have Micah 7.20, Thou wilt show faithfulness to Jacob. Notice that's just our regular English word for Jacob. Mercy to Abraham, as thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. So this word mercy here is the Hebrew word chesed. And that's the word translated mercy in the Old King James or loving kindness in the New American Standard Bible or steadfast love in the English Standard Version. There are some other varieties of that too. Jewish people have by and large harshly criticized this early version from 1917. In fact, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, the Jewish apologist Tovia Singer. Uh, he's one of the uh, really big Jews in uh, battle with Christians on YouTube. And uh, he just completely dismissed the JPS. He says that's totally irrelevant to us as Jews because they started with a Christian Bible and they edited it. So this is not even a Jewish Bible. He wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Another criticism is that the language is very archaic. It's uh, very reminiscent of Old English. Then the third thing that I would say about this version and why I wouldn't recommend it and why it's, it's not just me but it's generally not purchased anymore is that uh, we've had so many discoveries since 1917. My goodness, we didn't, even have, we didn't even have the Dead Sea Scrolls yet in 1917. They were discovered in the uh, 40s and weren't even made available in, in widely until the 90s. So, you know, these older translations really uh, do drop the ball as far as certain um, discoveries and improvements in accuracy that we've gained over the years. Next up, number two. We have the Corin Jerusalem Bible. This is a really interesting Bible by Corin Publishers, founded by Eliyahu Corin in the year 1961, and they bill it the first Jewish Bible in over 450 years. In the late 1400s, there were several Hebrew Bibles. Of course, you remember it was the 1450s that the first printing press came out uh, by Gutenberg. So that's when printing really gets started. So in the late 1400s, you have some Jewish teams of people that are printing Hebrew Bibles. But then in 1524, a guy named Daniel Bomberg, who we've mentioned in the past, a Catholic gentleman, produced a printed Hebrew Bible, the Rabbinic Bible, which he called the Mikraot Gedalot. This became the text, and it dominated, and also Christian scholars and publishers dominated over the next 400 years. So now it's the 60s, that's when the, the state of Israel is just 
really getting going. And they're saying, you know, we need to stop depending on Christians to print our heat. And I'm not even talking to English translation. I'm talking the Hebrew. You have to go to a Christian to get the Hebrew printed version of, of, of the Bible. So they said, we need our own version of this. And uh, that was a lot of what played into the Koran, also called the Jerusalem Bible, not to be confused with the Catholic Jerusalem Bible uh, or the New Jerusalem Bible. So the Koran the is important to keep straight. And it's not, nothing to do with the Koran, which is the Muslim Bible, uh, totally separate subject. So the goal for this uh, version here is that it's designed by Jews, edited by Jews, printed by Jews, bound by Jews. And uh, Mr. Koran himself designed the Hebrew font. Uh, it's, it's a very beautiful, I realize you can't see it, it's a very beautiful Hebrew font. And it's the Hebrew is on one side and then the English is on the other side. Now the English text is based on a guy named Friedlander. In 1881, he had come out with an English text. And so the Koran Bible borrowed from that. And under the leadership of Harold Fish, they edited that 1881 translation, and that became the standard translation starting out in the year 1962. And then they actually have a new update from the year 2010, which is the version I have, is from 2010, where uh, they have updated some things. Now, let's look at some verses here to give you a sense of flavor. Here we have Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and we can see that there's already a break from Christian traditional translation going on here. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And a wind from God moved over the surface of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Then we have Psalm 23 from the Koran Bible says, A psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd. Once again, using Lord instead of God's proper name there. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Now, they did update the language here, right? He makes me and leads me instead of maketh me and leadeth me, right? So there is uh, some modernizing that's happening there, uh, keeping pace with the language. Then Isaiah 9, 6, we find really a very similar translation to the JPS, don't we? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government is upon his shoulder, and his name is called Pele Yoez El Gibor Aviad Sar Shalom. Uh, very similar, they uh, switched out the J for a Y here, which is much more accurate to the Hebrew. Uh, other than that, it's, it's pretty much identical. And then we have Micah 7.20, which says, Thou wilt show truth to Yaakov. Ah, now, now it's getting interesting. This is where you really start to get the Hebrew flavor in translations. So this is the name for Jacob, but... The word Jacob is anglicized. It's, it's sort of like once you pass the Hebrew word Yaakov through a Greek translation and then by way of Latin make it English, you get Jacob. Ja, that ja sound doesn't even exist in Hebrew. So we have the Y in English. Why not use the Y? Uh, and a Q really does uh, match up, map a lot better than the, um, the C there. C could go two different ways in English. So Yaakov is actually spelling out in English letters what the Hebrew name really is. And for this translation, it was important for them to give the proper Jewish names to the Jewish people mentioned in the Bible. Abraham is just Abraham. Avraham, if you want to get technical, with a V instead of a B, but they just left it alone. And as thou hast sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So what I just read to you, is a version from 2010, 
Okay, this is not from 1910, 1710, you know, 1510. In the year 2010, which is not that long ago, how many people were going around saying thee and thou? Well, they explain it in the preface. They say, look, in English, you don't have a difference for saying you singular and you plural, I guess unless you live in America in the South and you have y'all. But uh, this is a Bible for people living in Israel where I guess they don't have y'all. So they said, well, let's use thee and thou for singular you, and then we'll use our regular word you for plural groups of people. And uh, they explained that right in the beginning. So that's what they decided to do. It does not incorporate pre-Masoretic texts like most Jewish uh, Bibles. Uh, they're just like sticking with the Masoretic text that's been passed down. They're not really interested in correcting it based on the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, the Samaritan Pentateuch. Um, and this really is the Bible of Israel. Like if, if the prime minister is going to be sworn in, this is what he's going to get sworn in on. If somebody is going to quote it in an official publication, they quote the Koran Jerusalem Bible. And it's a, a very traditional translation that agrees with a lot of the traditional way of thinking that the Jewish sages have had over the years. All right, on to our third Bible. This is the Jewish Publication Society 1985 Bible. It's not a revision, it's a full new translation. After World War II, this is what they say in their preface, when the Jewish Publication Society began to consider a new edition of the Bible, the idea of a modest revision of the 1917 translation met with resistance and the concept of a completely new translation gradually took hold. The proposed translation would reproduce the Hebrew idiomatically and reflect contemporary scholarship, thus laying emphasis upon intelligibility and correctness. This term idiomatically is important. In other words, it's not a literal translation, it's bringing it idiomatically into English. It would make critical use of the early rabbinic and medieval Jewish commentators, grammarians, and philologians, and would rely on the traditional Hebrew text, avoiding emendations. The translators avoided obsolete words and phrases, and whenever possible, rendered Hebrew idioms by means of their normal English equivalents. For the second person singular, the modern you was used instead of the archaic thou. So it's a very conscious change there that happened, even when referring to the deity. A further obvious difference between this translation and most of the older ones is in the rendering of the Hebrew particle wav, or what modern Jews would call vav, uh, which is usually translated and. Biblical Hebrew demanded the frequent use of the wav, but in that style it had the force not only of and, but also of however, but, yet, when, and any number of other such words and particles, or none at all that can be translated into English. Always to render it as and, is to misrepresent the Hebrew rather than to be faithful to it. Consequently, the committee translated the particle as the sense required or left it untranslated. So this is the Jewish Publication Society Bible. It's a lot smoother than some of the older translations. You can see it's printed in paragraph form instead of versified into separate lines for each verse. It's just a really smooth, nice English translation. You can get it in just English, as I have here, or uh, it's very commonly sold as Hebrew and English on parallel pages as well. Uh, now let's take a look at some of these verses in here. Genesis 1 says, When God began to create heaven and earth, 
the earth being unformed and void with darkness over the surface of the deep and a wind from God sweeping over the water, God said, let there be light and there was light. So we see here, we have a new way of thinking about the English translation bring, being brought forward here. Rather than saying, in the beginning God created, it says, when God began to create, and this was the this situation for everything, then God said, let there be light. So in this case, the very first act of God mentioned in Genesis is let there be light, the creation of light itself. But he's working with pre-existing materials, and there's no comment as to where those materials came from. Whereas in the other reading, God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he says, let there be light. Uh, so this is a, a different way of looking at it. In Psalm 23, we read a Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd. Once again, using Lord for God's name, I lack nothing. He makes, so instead of I shall not want, he says, I lack nothing. That's a little better, I think. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me to water in instead of still places, places of repose. Uh, that's nice. Psalm 23. Then we have Isaiah 9, 6. This one's really interesting. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and authority has settled on his shoulders. He has been named, the mighty God is planning grace, the eternal father, a peaceable ruler. So that's totally different. Then we have Micah 7.20, which reads, You will keep faith with Jacob. That's interesting, right? So they went right back to the regular English word for Jacob instead of Yaakov, right? Loyalty to Abraham. And this is that word chesed. They translate it instead of mercy or love, they translate it as loyalty. This is a very scholarly translation. Uh, what I mean by that is, yes, they are very carefully following the Masoretic text. Yes, they are extremely restrained from changing anything, even if they think it was wrong. But they also leave footnotes everywhere. They're really bringing the scholarship out, but they're a little timid to actually change the text itself. So they just do all the work in the, the footnotes. So a lot of times you'll see where it says, the meaning of Hebrew is uncertain. And what that means is that the vocabulary aids that we have available don't necessarily cover that word, or maybe that word could be translated multiple different ways and they weren't sure. Uh, this is really the first translation I have ever seen, uh, coming, this is from the 80s, that uh, had that level of honesty. Usually a translation just plops it in front of you and says, this is what the Bible is, this is what it says. Uh, not, with, not with the JPS, the JPS is like, yeah, this is what we think it says, but we're not sure. And they tell you when, when they're not sure, which I think is a really cool, honest feature to have. Uh, they also indicate what other translations typically do in the footnotes, and they do suggest possible emendations or corrections, but it's just in the footnote. And they also do uh, mention variations with other Masoretic texts and the Septuagint and the Targums in the footnotes as well. So this is a very in-tune translation with uh, scholarship. And I, honestly, I, I really hope they update it because sadly, 1985, once again, is a long time ago at this point, and the Dead Sea Scrolls weren't fully available, once again, until the 90s. And, uh, you know, I would like to see a more courageous scholarly Jewish translation where they do correct the text when they think it should be corrected based on older versions. We're not talking about changing the Bible to suit our fancy. We're trying to change it to the older form that it had at the time of Jesus, uh, rather than what it had in the 10th century. 
All right, so moving on then to our next Bible. This is the Art Scroll Stone Edition. It's a translation by Orthodox Jews, and it follows the Mikraot Gedalot that we've talked about before. And this one is interesting because it uses the term Hashem instead of the word Lord referring to God's name. So that's kind of cool. And you can see from this shot here that is English on one side. They kind of use this weird italicized font. I'm not a big fan of personally. But then the Hebrew is gorgeous on the other side. Very nice Hebrew font. And then at the bottom of the page in the stone edition of the Tanakh, you have commentary. You can see it's like a study Bible. Lots of notes. And those notes down there are going to give you the traditional Jewish interpretation. You're going to get a lot from Rashi. Also in the, the later parts you're going to get Rashi, but also Ramban, Ibn Ezra, and other sages. And they're going to give you a little insight at the bottom of the page. And uh, generally speaking, this translation is, is fairly literal until you get to the Song of Songs. The moment you get to the Song of Songs, it's just like we take the train off the track and we put it on a totally different track. Let me show you what I mean here. Uh, this is a direct quote from the Stone Tanakh. They write, To both the sages of the Talmud and the classic commentators, it was clear that Song of Songs is an allegory, a duet of longing between God and Israel. That is why, in the interest of accuracy, our translation of the song is different. Although we provide the literal meaning as part of the commentary in the footnotes, we translate the song according to Rashi's allegorical translation. So they, they relegate the, the literal meaning here in the commentary, and instead they put Rashi's allegorical understanding of it as the main text. Let me show you an example of this. So this is just like the second verse out of the whole book, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. Uh, the new JPS, I was just talking about from 85, says, Oh, give me the kisses of your mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. This is totally standard translation you're going to find in probably hundreds of English Bibles for this verse. Then you see the stone Tanakh. We lose the word kisses, we lose mouth, and we lose wine. It says, instead of give me kisses, it says, communicate your innermost wisdom to me again in loving closeness, for your love is dearer to me than all earthly delights. So they've totally interpreted the verse and substituted the interpretation in the main text as if that's what the Hebrew says. And then in the footnote, you can see what they'll do is they will actually quote the Hebrew and give you a literal English translation for that verse. So I think that this is just so unusual, so bizarre. Uh, I guess I understand why they did it, but I don't, I don't agree with it at all. It doesn't seem like a translation. It seems like an interpretation more in line with the Targums, right? Where the Targums would, would quote scripture and then add in extra explanations. Uh, this is more in line with that, although this is much more radical than uh, the Targum of Ankylos or some of the others that we've already looked at. Uh, let's look at some other verses, though. Well, let me, let me show you one more version. I really like this version. This is by Ariel and Hannah Block. It's a, just a translation of the Song of Songs. That's it. There's nothing else in here. And you can see it's very beautifully laid out. The Hebrew on one side, just a little snippet, and then poetically the English next to it. And uh, then there's extensive commentary afterwards. And they go the opposite, exact opposite way as the stone. Rather than shying away from any physical language, this Jewish translation of just this one book says, 
Kiss me. Make me drunk with your kisses. Your sweet loving is better than wine. So they're going the opposite direction with the text here. I just wanted to show you that too because there are some of these versions where it's just like one book or one little part of the Bible and a lot of times those can be the most interesting or the most helpful because those scholars have really delved deep into it and really considered it deeply and made all the different uh, research necessary to get to a good translation. Looking at uh, the Stone Edition, continuing on, Genesis 1 says, In the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth, when the earth was astonishingly empty with darkness upon the surface of the deep and the divine presence hovered upon the surface of the waters, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So this very much agrees with the uh, new JPS translation where we're seeing the very first line of the Bible as a dependent clause uh, that is just getting the timing of things rather than stating what God does. Then we have Psalm 23, a psalm by David. Now instead of saying, the Lord is my shepherd, it says Hashem. And so Ha is the Hebrew word for the, and Shem is the Hebrew word for name. So Hashem literally means the name. So they substituted the name of God for the Hebrew word, the name. Hashem is my shepherd, I shall not lack. In lush meadows he lays me down beside tranquil waters he leads me. Isaiah 9, 6, this one is really interesting. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and the dominion will rest on his shoulder. The wondrous advisor, mighty God, eternal father, called his name Sar Shalom. So rather than he will be called the mighty God, wonderful counselor, mighty God, and so on, what they're doing is uh, they're looking at this section here, wondrous advisor, mighty God, eternal father, as the subject of the verb called, and then his name is just Sar Shalom. Micah 7.20, grant truth to Jacob. So here we have just the regular English names, kindness to Abraham. Here chesed is translated as kindness instead of, what do we have, loyalty last time? As you swore to our fathers in days of old. Uh, moving on then to our next Bible, we have the Shakin Bible of Everett Fox. I've got uh, both volumes of it here. It's not a complete Old Testament. Uh, first he came out with the Torah in the year 1995, and then he came out with the earlier prophets in 2014. And the Shachim Bible by Everett Fox is really one of the most fascinating English translations of the Hebrew text that you can possibly buy. Uh, and let me, let me explain why that is. This is from the Bible preface here of Everett Fox. He writes, The purpose of this work is to draw the reader into the world of the Hebrew Bible through the power of its language. While this sounds simple enough, it is not usually possible in translation. Indeed, the premise of almost all Bible translations, past and present, is that the meaning of the text should be conveyed in as clear and comfortable a manner as possible in one's own language. Yet the truth is that the Bible was not written in English in the 20th or even the 17th century. It is ancient, sometimes obscure, and speaks in a way quite different from ours. Accordingly, I, Everett Fox, have sought here primarily to echo the style of the original, believing that the Bible is best approached, at least at the beginning, on its own terms. So I have presented the text in English dress, but with a Hebraic voice. Uh, but he's heavily influenced by two scholars, Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig of Germany. And these two scholars went through the Old Testament in Hebrew and translated it into German 
in this excessively literal fashion. Uh, and basically their goal was to use the German language to show the people what the Hebrew was underneath it. They didn't care about the German rules of literature. They just cared about mimicking the Hebrew as much as possible for someone who doesn't read Hebrew to, to be able to understand. So Everett Fox is really a disciple of uh, Buber and Rosenzweig. And what he did was very similar, but he toned it down a notch. He didn't quite go as full-on, make up new words as these guys did. Uh, he toned it down a notch, but what he did is he looked for places in the Hebrew where in a verse, for example, they'll use alliteration where the, the same first letter of each word is, repeats. He'll, in his English, he'll find a way to do that. So you get that same little nuance in the English. Uh, if there's a Hebrew pun, he wants there to be an English pun. If there's a poetic language, he's going to space it out in his English formatting in multiple lines and really do everything he can to give you a sense of the original form of the language. At the beginning of God's creating of the heavens and the earth, when the earth was wild and waste. See, now in Hebrew, that's tohu vavohu. You hear that, how that sounds. Tohu is the first word, vavohu. Tohu, vohu, you hear the, the run. So what he did here is he said, all right, well, I got to find two words that at least somehow link together. He couldn't rhyme the ending part of it. I'm sure he would have liked to have done that, uh, but he couldn't do that. So he just repeated the first sound twice, wild and waste. Darkness over the face of ocean. Notice he doesn't say the face of the ocean. He says the face of ocean with a capital O. This is all very intentional, mimicking the Hebrew underneath it. Rushing spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, here's the problem with the Shotgun Bible. It's not done. <laughs> it's not even close to done. I can't show you Psalm 23. It doesn't exist. I can't show you Isaiah. He didn't translate Isaiah yet. I can't show you Micah. He didn't translate Micah. So what I have is the, the uh, Torah, the first five books, and then I have the first part of the historical books, like Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings, but that's about all I got. So I'm going to show you a verse that's different than the other versions. This is 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 8, just to give you a flavor for the spelling of names in the Shachan Bible. Hezekiahu said to Yishiyahu, What is the sign that YHWH will heal me? Okay, there's a lot going on here. So first of all, this in English we call Hezekiah, right? But that's not how you say it in Hebrew. How you say it in Hebrew is Hitzkiahu. He translated it into English letters, but he wants you to have that Hebrew flavor in your mouth when you're chewing on Scripture. Yeshayahu is uh, Isaiah, and then for God's name, he just, he just put the exact letters. No vowels. You won't be able to pronounce that, but it, what is he doing? He's putting you in touch with an, the original as much as possible. That's his translation philosophy. All right, on to Robert Alter's The Hebrew Bible in three volumes. Robert Alter is a professor at uh, California, Berkeley. His goal is as much as possible to put you in touch with the original Hebrew. And this is a strong break from Christian translations, as we'll see later on. Christian translations trip over themselves to completely rewrite the, the Bible as much as they can so that it's easy for you to understand and that you get it immediately. You don't have to think about it. Uh, Robert Alter is the exact opposite of that. He says, he's, he calls that a rage to explain the text. He says, look, the Bible is literature. You need to be able 
to recognize the foreignness of Scripture. So he will even have, he's a professor of literature originally, uh, he'll even have grammatically inappropriate constructions in his translation. He doesn't care because he recognizes it is a translation and I, I could smooth everything out or I could put people in touch with what it really is in the Hebrew. Then he has a commentary on the bottom of the page, uh, kind of a lengthy commentary in some sec sections and a little shorter in other sections. Uh, he comes from more of a reform perspective as far as I could tell and he uh, has some thoughts about some of the scholarship that calls into question who wrote which books of the Bible. Uh, he's sort of like aware of it but he doesn't delve into that subject too much. He's more interested in the Bible as literature. Like how does the final product of the Hebrew Bible come into English and how does it affect us? Uh, and that's kind of his angle on things. Uh, let's take a look at some of his translation. Genesis 1.1 when God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth then was welter and waste, and darkness over the deep, and God's breath hovering over the waters, God said, let there be light, and there was light. He's reading that very early part as a dependent clause, describing the state of things when God began rather than what God did. Second of all, you can see, like Shaken, he tries to find two words that sound alike for tohu vavohu. And thirdly, you have a lot of ands. Alter loves ands. And that's because Hebrew has ands everywhere. So many sentences start with the vav, and that's the way, just the way this literature functions. Uh, moving on, Psalm 23, we read a David psalm. The Lord, uh, notice he uses the standard L-O-R-D, all caps for God's name. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Oh, we went old school. I shall not want. In grass meadows he makes me lie down, by quiet waters guides me. Isaiah 9.6 says, For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and leadership is on his shoulders, and his name is called Wondrous Counselor, Divine Warrior, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Notice instead of Mighty God, he translates it Divine Warrior, which is a legitimate alternate translation for El Gabor. Micah 7.20 he says, grant truth to Jacob. So now he's back to the standard anglicized English names. Grant truth to Jacob, kindness to Abraham, as you swore to our fathers in ancient days. And for chesed, he translates it as kindness. The Jewish people have been studying this book forever. And they've been stewarding it. And there's just great wisdom there for us to, to learn. I think it would be crazy not to learn from uh, the, the Jewish people and their scholars and their sages what this book means. Uh, you know, obviously in a discerning manner we have certain things we're committed to, but I think we can learn a lot from these different things. However, sadly, most of these translations, at least in the text itself, all these translations are not going to give you the Septuagint, they're not going to give you the Samaritan Pentateuch, and they're not going to give you the Dead Sea Scrolls. Robert Alter is aware of those things because his translation just came out recently, but only, again, only in the footnotes. He's not going to change the Masoretic text. That's it for this section of the Hebrew Bible. We've been looking at some English translations that are available. You might want to pick up one or more of these for your own personal study. Uh, next time we're going to switch gears and we're going to get into the Greek New Testament. It's going to be great. All right, well, that's it for this topic. Uh, just to let you know, I do have a number of these Bibles all with links in the show notes if you'd like to get any of them. Uh, they really are helpful for Bible study. 
And as we get later on into the class and consider the incredibly significant issue of bias in translation, uh, it is nice to have some different bias that can help us see where Christians tend to tweak the text or Jewish uh, people tend to tweak it the other way and uh, sort out some of those issues. If you have one of these Bibles and have an opinion on it or would like to make a recommendation, I encourage you to log on to restitutio.org and find episode 334, Jewish Bible Translations, and drop a comment. Uh, let us know your experience with any of these translations, what your recommendations are, uh, so we can all benefit from that. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at our website, restitutio.org. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.